everyone, and welcome to episode 225 of Milwaukee's Tailgate Brewers podcast, part of the MKE Tailgate podcast network. I'm James, joined this week by Ryan Top and Paul Noonan. And guys, how, how are your weekends going? I hope better than Jawan Howard's. <laughs> uh, yeah, better than his and Joe Krabenhoff's. Um, nobody's, <laughs> nobody's taking a swing at me yet, so I consider myself lucky. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm having a good weekend. Liverpool won, the Badgers won. Things yeah, seem generally actually, pretty good. I live I live like a, a mile from the best arcade in the country, so I took the kids there for the first time this weekend. I saw that. Uh, we, that's had, cool. we had a blast. Nice. What was the name of that what, place what, again? That's the Galloping Ghost. The Galloping um, Ghost. Are, okay. They are um, very interested in their craft. They would basically buy any machine they see in uh, refurb it. They have three buildings: one with machines, one with just pinball machines, and then a Holy repair crap. shop. Um, and that's insane. Uh, they have a bunch of stuff that is unique to them. They have the only copy of Primal Rage 2 in existence in that place, which is a actually quite fun game that we played. <laughs> uh, it, it's really cool. Highly recommend if you're in the Chicago area going there. What What are the kids' favorite arcade games there? Um, they're not really that picky. Um, as long as they're bright and flashy. Um, I don't. Bridget, I don't really think has one. She mostly played uh, Championship Sprint, uh, a top-down car racing game. Uh, she was okay at pole position as well. Eric liked Smash TV, which is a little distressing. Uh, that is for for those of you who don't know, it's a game based on The Running Man. Um, oh boy! <laughs> but 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 more violent than The Running Man. <laughs> um, so yeah, he liked that a lot and played it for a good long time. Nice. Yeah, I've been to a couple arcade bars here in Madison, but nothing that has three buildings. So that's uh, that sounds pretty intense. Actually, I'd probably be overwhelmed a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty cool, it, honestly. Like it's, uh, they have everything you could possibly ever want to play in our in our arcade. It's great, awesome, awesome. Well, uh, thanks for holding down the fort uh, with me gone last week. Uh, appreciate it. It was fun to kind of listen to you guys because I can't listen to myself talk. So, um, <laughs> listen to last week's episode to get all caught up. Um, and, and we're actually kind of excited because we're not going to be as lockout focused i guess this week which is which is good uh we had the pakoda stuff come out this week so there's plenty of projection talk and actual baseball things to talk about uh provided that we actually get a season this year so uh we'll see how that goes but uh, I guess before we get started, the, the same old, if you want to help support us, you can become a patron. That's at patreon.com slash MKE tailgate. You get question priority here on this podcast. We've got some good questions again this week, as always. You also get that question priority on the Packers reporting as eligible podcast. Uh, meanwhile, yep, yep. And uh, five bucks a month, you get some extra content. You get minor league extras from Ryan and James Anderson from Rotowire. You also get Paul's reporting as eligible mini pods uh, ever so often uh, during the Packers offseason. I know you had one this past week on how to rebuild. So that we uh, did. De- definitely a good listen to. And, you know, we had uh, we're into um kind of, uh, you know, vague social media posting season. We had Devondre Campbell <laughs> post something at Lambeau Field. So uh, start the speculation on that as well. But uh yeah, you guys will be popping up every once in a while when it, it's time to talk about yes. something, right? As, yeah. at, you know, at least the draft, and if anything else major happens, and on Aaron Watch, you never know. Uh, we'll right. we'll see an episode if that happens. So yes, right. That'll... We're we're kind of getting down to uh, Aaron Watch crunch time here. So uh, we'll, we'll see how that goes. By the way, um, the Packers have to extend um, anybody with void multiple void years 
by I think noon tomorrow, or those get accelerated into this year's cap. Um, I believe that's Kevin King that and Devondre Campbell. Maybe I forget who yep. else is in there. Campbell, uh, King. I think I saw Shandon. Maybe Shandon. Yep, Shandon. from Archon. I saw that, and yep. uh, there's one more, but uh, Campbell's the big one, right? So absolutely. <laughs> Exactly. Love to have him back. So fingers crossed that'll come out by the time you're listening to this. We'll, we'll see because that deadline is coming up. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah. And, and as we get into franchise tag season, we'll see what happens with Devante and, and Aaron and all those two. So uh, stay tuned, I guess, to the the, the Packers side of things here. But uh, hey, uh, maybe we'll have baseball this year. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I guess the, <laughs> the events of the last week are kind of up to anyone's interpretation. I mean, on the downside, uh, the owners officially said that spring training is going to be delayed until at least March 5th. They put out that uh, sad press release basically saying, you know, they're forced to do this. Even though, we are forced you know. to do Good yeah. job by the players. Good job by the Players yep. Association on the response. Well done yep. there. Yeah. So, yeah, the players are responded basically, you know, pointing out as as we've kind of talked about here for months now that the owners started this lockout and they could easily just... <laughs> End it, end it and spring end training time. could start uh so uh yeah so that delay is at least there but i guess there's still a glimmer of hope you know they said they're gonna start meeting daily now which seems like it should have happened maybe a month ago uh but <laughs> uh deadlines kind of spur action as they always say and so a- as soon as this week they're gonna start meeting every day and i think everybody kind of assumes that deadline to get a deal done and the season still start on time is the end of february february 28th i i guess just presuming what a three-week spring training there so uh i guess thoughts on on things in the last week paul any uh more optimism or more pessimism i guess based on the fact that they're going to start talking every day now yeah i think now is um appropriate to express more optimism because this is the first big financial hit that anybody has to take with spring training um starting to go away a little bit it does impact the owners and um i'm sure that some of them once they actually noticed that they won't be getting money um decided to up what they do and and try and get actual conversation going so um this is when progress is actually made when when this pressure starts to hit people and i think you'll actually start to see some some actual negotiations on the uh, the important points that they have to negotiate now and not just BS crap from the owners to try and window dress things up. So, yeah, uh, this is this is when it, uh, the rubber hits the road and now they'll actually start making real progress. Yeah, I like that you use the word getting the owner's attention there, because I do wonder for a lot of these guys, this is not their primary business. This is not the only thing they're doing. And how many of them were just sort of half tuned out because there was no real risk of losing any real money until right about now is now is when that is starting to become real for them. And maybe some of them are starting to engage a little bit more. There was talk out of those owners meetings last week that things were maybe a little contentious on the owner's side, that there were some dissenting voices. So at least that's something uh, I, I still don't think the owners are getting all that serious they haven't put out anything that would constitute a a really good offer. I think Joe Sheehan put it the best when he said that this owner's offer, this latest owner's offer, is like a December offer. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, it's an yep. offer you'd make in December. That's good. Yep. Which, you know, not great for February. What are we at? 20th here. So, <laughs> right. Yeah, that's not great. But I think there is a realization that you are getting into crunch time now and that there is going to be a problem. 
I have heard people speculate that once games start being missed, that that actually will be a kind of a a, a point where the the pressure will build up to the point where you're going to start missing regular season games where you're going to have to start pushing those back. But then there's going to be sort of a slip after that potentially where maybe at that point people get a little less serious again and they start looking at it. Well, we're already missing games. So now we're really going to punish the other side. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that I is can... something to maybe be a little bit afraid of. Should you get to that point? But man, they really, I, I go back to the idea here that they can't, they ha- there has to be some realization by both sides here. And I'm not putting this on the players really. It's, this isn't you know, really pretty much all on the owners, but there has to be a realization for both of them that there's only so far they can push this before people are going to get really fed up after what yeah. they did in 2020. Absolutely. Because really the eyes were on them in 2020 very, you know, in a way that I don't think eyes are really even on them yet here. Like maybe they're mm-hmm. starting to get to that point, but in that time period in 2020, people were really focused in and they were looking for a baseball season to start. And it was pretty clear unless you listen to Buster only that like, it was <laughs> it was the owners who wanted to delay things as long as possible because they didn't want to pay for more than 60 games of the players. Yep. And then they wanted their postseason where they were going to get to rake in all their cash. So as short of a regular season as they could get away with, that was what they were out for. I don't think that's what we're looking at here. I think there's there has to be a realization that that's that kind of brinksmanship is going to do too much damage to the sport but man it i guess we're i'm gonna have to see it to believe it until i i really will truly believe that they they aren't that stupid they're stupid and they're selfish and um they lose money at the start of of spring training but the bigger thing with regular season games is they might think okay we can put pressure on the players the one thing they have to be really really careful of though is popping uh tv bubbles and um, <laughs> jeopardize future big contracts. Uh, if they are going to have these pissing matches with the players, you know, once a decade, that actually substantially reduces your t- your, your ability to sell TV. Um, and mm-hmm. yeah, labor instability is bad for that. Um, they, they uh, it's not you know that's not terrible. Nine years out of ten is fine, but the, the some of the smarter owners really have to take a long term look at what makes them profitable, which is the the actual value of the asset they possess and uh you can't be doing you can't be doing this this crap all the time and having all this instability um and still sell the the tv money that they do especially because like we're sort of on the downslope of COVID at this point i think um the summer's shaping up to be pretty nice uh, but there may be future pandemics and there may need to be negotiations of how to get baseball on the field during them and uh uh, you can't have your last two negotiations being, uh, okay, this was very contentious over disease. This was very contentious and lost games out of this. And then go to at, like TV people who are thinking of, well, what do we show when there's a pandemic? Well, we just paid a right. billion dollars for baseball. Now we don't have baseball again. Um, that doesn't work. So uh, the owners are going to start to take this from all sides. The player association is doing a much better job of focusing this back on the owners. Um, but pre-internet, it, every lockout was called a strike by most people. It's just what people are used to calling labor, like things that where labor goes and away. Um, that's no longer the case. 
And even guys who are in the pockets of the owners have to, in, in reporting, read out the Players Association's statements on this, which always are clear that, hey, this is the owners, not us, we'll show up. So um, the owners are really behind it here, both on spring training games going and I think when regular season games, if they if they also are missed, uh, go. And I think that this will get done. Uh, it's just that this is we've had to wait till now to get it started. This is when this is when it actually happens. Yeah, I mean, Ryan, you and I were kind of talking before we started here that I think maybe one of the things that's really changed since the last time they've really had this level of labor strife is just the coverage has kind of changed, right? Like there's a lot more significant national voices uh, willing to kind of give the players their due here or are less likely to just take what the owners say at face value, right? Like that's Mm -hmm. a big change here and kind of the source of a lot of pressure. Well, yeah. I mean, you think about the guys who are the most respected national reporters in the game right now and Jeff Passan and Ken Rosenthal, I think, are a tier above basically anybody else. And those guys have both been very even-handed in what they've said and have given the owners quite a bit of of guff to this point, I guess, for what they Rosenthal they've... got fired for it, so, you Right, know. he literally, well, he lost <laughs> he his sure third did. gig. So, yeah, but he, he did. And yeah. so that, like, that does suggest that they're doing better. And really, you know, like... Who are the, the the really like intransigent ones like Buster Only, who's the second tier guy now at ESPN behind Passan? Mm-hmm. And does anybody even know where Bob Nightingale and uh, John Heyman and some of those old stalwart owner suck ups even work anymore? Like, it, it, does anybody know what jobs they actually have other than just being on Twitter? I don't know where anybody works. I just follow names, so I can't. I'm not the person <laughs> to ask. Yeah, so I don't like. So I think that part of it has changed, and I think there's just a general recognition. Those guys, as much as we want to say that like Twitter isn't the real world, and that especially like baseball Twitter does not represent the yeah. the thought processes of most fans, and I'm willing to accept that quite a bit. But somebody like like uh, Jeff Passan and Ken Rosenthal or uh, some of these other reporters, they know that when they go on Twitter and they they spew some pro owners nonsense. If that's what they want to do is to put something out there that is basically dictation from the owners. If that is what they're inclined to do, they know they're going to get blowback. Now they know that there's going to be a horde of people ready in their mentions to tell them what a bootlicker they are basically. (laughs) And so that does, I think put some pressure on them to be more even handed about this and to be, you know, less willing to just take whatever the owners tell them and to run with that as the story. And I think that that is a very good thing. You are getting a world now where you, you don't just have one side dictating the coverage, which was very much, you're probably too young to remember that I'm, just kind of old enough to remember it. I just remember in 1994, the coverage of the strike then, and it was a strike, but the coverage of that was very much like greedy players, greedy players, greedy players. Absolutely. And that was, that was the, the overall tenor of the thing. And barely anybody would say anything positive towards the players. And that is not the world we live in anymore. Thank God. Yeah. I think, um, you know, for any reporter, whatever they cover, skepticism is healthy. So I think it's it's good to see 
uh, that maybe come to the sports sphere a little bit more in, in challenging the decision makers like you might see in, in other avenues. I think that's just kind of a natural progression of things. Um, I guess one last thing before we kind of move off the labor talk too. And um, I know you guys mentioned the TV contracts are the big thing. The owners have this big old expanded playoff carrot hanging in front of them from ESPN, right? And the players have basically said, if we lose any regular season games, that's off the table. So I think, you know, Paul, does that add extra incentive for the owners then too to kind of maybe move off their hardline stance? Yeah, it's one of the players' only really large negotiating weapons here is um, they don't really care about the playoffs that much from a financial perspective. And I, I, my players are not sure to think that much about what's going to hurt the game long term. But uh, they're savvy enough to know that more playoff teams equals not as much trade deadline action and not as much paying those extra guys to get over the top. And uh, yeah, withholding this carrot from the owners is a smart tactic. I think it's something they maybe wouldn't have realized in, in past negotiations. Um, and uh, they should hold on to this till the bitter end, till they get, you know, what they what they think is a fair deal out of it. Don't give in early on this one. It's your main point of leverage. Mm-hmm. I 100% agree. And I was, I I was kind of dismayed by some of the assumptions that were out there that it was already a done deal. I because I don't think mm-hmm. that's necessarily the yep. case. No. So the players still are going to have to approve of that. And I would much prefer 12 to 14. Uh, 12 is quite yeah. a bit better to me than 14. <laughs> I think yes. 14 should have to wait until expansion inevitably happens in a couple of years. But whatever. Sure. All right. I guess speaking of playoffs, uh, the Brewers seem to be a favorite for them again, provided we actually get a season. Uh, at least if you uh, believe the Pakota projections. So I guess the biggest, most uh, happy news for the Brewers in the last week is <laughs> Pakota loves the Brewers. Um, I guess we're not super used to seeing uh, that, but you know, they're once again projected to win the NL Central. It's not even really close. Uh, they're actually projected to be one of the best teams in the league. 97 wins. They is are the Dakota projected. In fact, projected to be the best team in the league, uh, which is the highest insane. win total projection, <laughs> which is insane. It's it, that's also not exactly true because a big part of why they're projected to be have the best record is because their division is so atrocious below them. Tomato, tomato here. Uh, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll gloss over that. But they like, are projected to have the most wins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Second place is the Reds at below 500 with 80 wins to prove Ryan's point there. Uh, so it, it is a very bad division and nobody's trying, but that works in our favor. So I'm not going to say too much bad about that. Uh, beyond that, the cards projected at 76 wins, which I think is uh, the other talking point out of this is just kind of how much Pakoda seems to hate the Cardinals, although that seems to be a yearly thing, too, as we've mm-hmm. kind of discussed. Uh, then they've got the Pirates at 70 wins and the Cubs in last place with 68 Woo! wins. Uh, so I guess first, before we kind of get into the Brewers individual projections, uh, Paul, your your overall indications uh, or feelings on the NL Central projections here. Um, I, other than the Cardinals, which I think we're all, in, by the way, prospectus also, most of the write-up is about the low Cardinals projection yeah. and how it's probably not that bad. Um, but I, I think it's probably pretty accurate, honestly. I don't think the Cubs have done a ton to improve. Um, and I, I talked to 
to Jonathan Judge a, a few, probably a month or two ago now. Um, you know, there's still a lot that can happen before the season starts. Like right. no no players have signed since the lockout started, and so there's room here for many teams to make drastic improvements. Now the Brewers have such a huge built-in lead here that it's going to be hard for anybody to improve that much. But uh, I, I do think it makes a lot of sense. I mean, the Pirates are a catastrophe of a team. They're mm-hmm. slowly getting better, but and their farm's okay, but that's fine. But the Cubs um, are still kind of a mess, honestly, um, and have not. So they're not not on the upswing. The Cardinals, like we said, are probably a little bit better. The Reds, I think, are in a slow crash mode. And the Brewers, just that pitching staff and bullpen will get you really far. And if um, you know, if they get average offense, they'll be good. And if they get a few bounce back seasons, then this projection makes tons of sense. Um, the other thing is, I think we're pretty good on this podcast of recognizing uh, Pakota for for what it is, which is sometimes critical of your team. Like when it it's always identified Keston Hira as a guy who has problems and holes in his swing. And, uh, you know, we were all very positive on him when he had his good start, but we always would point out, hey, you know, Dakota sees some problems here and we shouldn't just assume he's going to be good forever. And um, we should take the good with the bad. When Pakota sees the Brewers being this dominant, maybe they won't, you know, win the, the division by 17 games, but it's a good sign that they're going to be an excellent team and certainly in the playoff mix um, as long as they don't suffer horrible injuries. Yeah, and that gets into what is really carrying this, which is largely the pitching. It is the pitching side that is carrying this, especially their depth of pitching is what's carrying this. And that is always a precarious thing. So you have to take it with a grain of salt and understand that this is something that can kind of blow up on you, though having 17 games between you and the second place team suggests (laughs) that it's a it's a really a massive gap. Yeah. Yeah. Though we turn around and we could say Dan Zimborski from who has another very respected uh, projection system zips had the Cardinals a half a game ahead of the Brewers in his first sure. yep. look that he did like a month ago. So, and all this is still subject to change. Obviously rosters are going to change though. I do question how much it's going to really change in the NL central. I think the Brewers will make moves coming out of the lockout. Mm-hmm. I, I think that you can kind of bet on that, that that is a thing that's going to happen. <laughs> the question is sort of impact how big they're going to go. And I don't know if you guys saw this. I put a a poll question up on Twitter for people. So now we see this projection for, for Pakoda and it tells us that they have this supposed massive lead in the NL central. And what does that say to you that the Brewers should do? And I was surprised that this was as close as it was. It was basically a dead heat. Um, Should the Brewers get aggressive right out of the, the lockout and lock up a player who can really add to their offense especially like can they improve right out of out of the lockout or should they wait until the deadline and see what holes have emerged and look to to plug those holes if and when that becomes an issue and it the fact that it was so close surprised me but I kind of wonder if having that kind of a comfortable lead if they're going to more sit on this and just wait and say we don't really need to do anything right now we can just wait for this to play out and make moves as needs arise like they did last year. I mean, they obviously they made that Willie Adamas move more than a month before the deadline, actually more mm-hmm. than two months before the deadline made in late May. It was May. Yeah. 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 I'll bet. I'll bet timing doesn't impact their thought process very much. Um, I, I suspect that they're just always looking for 
available surplus value, be it preseason or during season. And and it's it's agnostic as to when that actually happens. The the the, uh, the one thing that would change that is an injury where you actually have a, a plug or a hole developed that you have to plug. But um, I don't think there's a reason to discount them making a move when the lockout ends just because I'm sure they're just doing a ton of homework. And I'm sure they're also doing homework about the kind of weird market that's likely to emerge with a bunch of guys who are free agents having right. all to be signed in a very short period of time. There's not going to be a be lot insanity. of sanity. Yeah, there's not like, going to be a lot of time to determine what the market is this go around. And there may be bargains available. There may also not be bargains available. There might be giant player inflation with people all competing uh, up front. It's going to be a hmm. tricky one. It's going to be like the the end of trading places on the frozen orange juice. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, but they'll be prepared for it. It's just a matter of what what the market actually delivers. Yeah, how much yeah. Uh, let's do some game theory discussions are going on in the cubicles yeah. of the, the Brewers nerd offices right now. It, probably mm. quite a bit of that going on. Yep. What else are they doing? I'm, I'm sure they've done most of the other things other, aside from long-term projects. So they're probably looking at a lot of that right now, trying to figure out exactly how it's going to play out coming out of the lockout. Should yeah, that happen it, shortly here? This is going to be really weird and insane. And maybe, you know, if baseball has any hope of regaining a positive public image, like that insanity of the week or so before spring training as guys just sign in a flurry, I think is going to keep them in the headlines and, and kind of maybe spur some interest. But, yeah. um, you know, Ryan, you mentioned the nerd cave or the nerd office of the, <laughs> the Brewers mm. front office. You know, maybe they're looking at some of these offensive projections and thinking, do we really need to do anything? Because, I mean, you look at, some of the offensive projections and again like almost top to bottom everybody's projected to be average or above right so i guess uh, what are your feeling on the offensive projections there yeah actually the first thing that jumped out to me when i looked at this was how top heavy this is by comparison to their recent teams uh, if you compare this to what they've done in recent years looking at the brewers uh just I'm going to run down the wars real quick that they have projected. These are the 50% projections mm -hmm. for the Brewers hitters for war. Uh, Yelich is at 4.3. Wong is at 2.7. Uh, Adamas at 2.3. Kane at 2.3. Uh, Urias at 2.1. So that's five of the, the, uh, of the eight, I guess, at this point starters. Because there's going to be a ninth. We know the DH is coming, but we don't yeah. know exactly how that's going to be yet. But five of the, the the nine starters there are above two wins projected. That's pretty high compared to recently. And then you you don't actually drop that far. Renfro's at 1.6 and Narvaez is at 1.5. And I, I think those are actually a little bit on the low side for my taste. Can I, I, I would, I'm going to do this a lot during the podcast, but can I just point out that Hunter Renfro's comps are insanely good for a guy... <laughs> For a I guy, love that looks. Yeah, for a guy no, who's not insanely comps. good, they're Paul O'Neill, who is a very good player. Um, yeah. Tom Brunanski, who is a pretty good tubby player, and Sammy freaking Sosa. Uh, <laughs> so, Which so, Sammy Sosa? I guess I don't know. <laughs> yeah, um, pre-roid so, yeah. Sammy Sosa or roid Sammy yeah. Sosa? Like, uh, yeah, I don't know. But yeah, still, I mean, yeah, the that's thing is, Renfro's not young. Real. He's thirty. I I was wondering when you said that, like. Okay, so is he younger? No, he's not really no, younger. No, he's not. No. I mean, Paul hmm. O'Neill was kind of a late bloomer, was he not? Or, or 
I guess I just remember him as a Yankee because I'm yeah I remember a young and an old Yankee who hit for moderate power but awesome average. That's my yeah. Paul O'Neill memory. Yeah, I mean he was a key player to that 1990 Reds team that won the World Series, so he was one of the right. better hitters on that team before he signed with the Yankees. But yeah, it's a it is a weird comp too because Renfro does not have the 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 shape of the uh, of where his value comes from is much more mm-hmm. power oriented than what. Paul O'Neill does like an average or OBP. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like Paul O'Neill famously, as we all know from watching Seinfeld, it's not even a power hitter. So like <laughs> Jay Buhner. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I love these comparables though. I think Paul highlighted this in, in our little group chat, but like every Brewers infielder is comp to Wilmer Flores, which is kind <laughs> of, uh, that's ironic. charming actually. There are, yeah. So many brewers are comped to so many other former brewers. I, yeah. I wonder if it's a Pakota thing or if, if it's a type that they have. They just have a type, yeah. But yeah, because Wilmer Flores is on the Willie Adamas and the Louis Sirius comp list. Um, Lorenzo Kane has Marquis Grissom on his. Devon yeah. Wett was a brewer <laughs> for one White. season, was he not? Yep, yep. he was. Um, yep. Adamas has a VR uh, Martin, comparable. Yep, Martin Maldonado is on every catcher comparable. <laughs> uh, Jonathan Lucroy is on uh, with Martin Maldonado as Omar Narvaez is. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's kind of Jackie Bradley Jr. Jackie Bradley Jr. is a Garrett Mitchell, Mitchell comp. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's um, one for you, Matt Olson as a comp for Rowdy Tellez. I, I was like yep, me I some of that. that, which is I really something. That. Yeah, that's really um, for as much as we talked about Matt Olson, we, man, we, Matt we Olson might already have one. Time. Yeah, Jackson Reitz also has Martin Maldonado on his comp list. By the way, <laughs> we know that Judge and, listens to this, and the fact that we're spending so much time talking about the comps. Is probably driving Judge crazy right now. No, it's fine. But this is the fun we, part. We this know it's Cantel Marte for Luis yeah. Urias. We, ooh, ooh, I do we like know that. that. Yeah, we know the comps are for fun. We know that they tell you certain things about development and stuff no. like that. We we understand. We're this is why Dan has so much fun with the Zips comps. So yes. yeah, but I don't. I'm not asserting that Hunter Renfro is going to be Sammy Sosa. That is not what I'm saying at all. It'd be nice well, if he was. You know, it's one thing because you're looking at the comps like for Yelich, it's three Hall of Famers. Yeah. You know, <laughs> right. and for Colton Wong, it's two should be Hall of Famers in uh, Lou Whitaker, who should be in the Hall of Fame, no doubt, and Robert Cano, who would be if it weren't for you know the steroids. Yeah. Yep, so yep. like it's. They have some talent at the top so, end. Uh, also, um, worth noting, Keston Hira's projection and comps are not terrible. Um, yeah, I, not, I looked that up great. as we were talking about yeah. them. Yeah. They're not great, but they are better than I expected them to be. Uh, low, low average, but um, a 315 on base percentage and a 430 slugging. Um, for I mean, Holy he's, shit, that he's not going to be a second baseman anymore, which makes that not great. But right. um, you know, that's. That's some level of upside there, so that's okay. And he's got Jorge Solar and, and Ian, Hop, <laughs> Ian Hap on his comps list, so um, yeah, maybe something there. I mean, yeah, both are kind of you know swing for the fences, high strikeout types. Hopefully, it's more Jorge Soler than uh, Alexi <laughs> Casilla. Yeah, but yeah. you know, uh, yeah, that's that's really crazy. I think the other thing I wanted to talk about too, and Paul, I know you've you've kind of highlighted this too, but the Yelich 
uh, Pakoda projection seems pretty ambitious, I guess, compared to what we've seen yeah. uh, on the field the last couple of years, right? So 261, 385, 470 with a 127 DRC plus, which would still like be all-star level, right? And I, I think we've all kind of expressed some skepticism at this point, right? Yeah, uh, that's all true. And, and I think Pakoda and Prospectus have some, not Pakoda, Prospectus has some skepticism of this as well, because We've talked about this. Yelich's problems seem like kind of outlier problems. This isn't a scenario where he had um, some injury that robbed him of a couple of years. And the back, yes, I know. But, um, you know, a lot of times guys will have some kind of injury and then bounce back to normal or they'll just go through the normal aging curve. And he hasn't done that. He just fell off a cliff for two years. Um, but I, I've, I talked to Jonathan a little bit about this too. And what Pakota likes about Yelich is that he is still – um, very selective on his pitches and still puts up that high on base percentage, even though the slugging has disappeared. Um, and that pitchers still seem to be afraid of him, right? That yeah, they're still... pitchers still seem to treat him like star Christian Yelich and um, that pitchers may be seeing something there um, in how he his approach is um, that, you know, it still strikes fear into them a little bit. So um, it's, it, it is a weird profile for Yelich, frankly, and until that on-base percentage starts to come down a little bit, I think projection systems will st- still see him as somebody who is likely to bounce back, and that's what Pakoda is seeing here. So um, I know that we're all... I'm, I won't speak for you two. I'm very skeptical on Yelich. Oh, I am too, um, yeah. And I, I think that there is still something very wrong there, and you know maybe, maybe they'll fix it. Um, but until I actually see that happen, I'm not buying this projection, and I would have him slated for... Closer to a one war than a four point three. Ooh, that's ooh, that's rough. Um, that's that's steep, but yeah, I'm, I'm probably well, I in the middle. I don't think he's good at defense anymore either. So um, that's I an issue. Yeah, if he DHs a ton, yeah, then that that warp takes a hit. Yeah, Ryan, where do you stand on that? Well, okay, so what I'm looking at here is if you take basically his last two seasons and you say he's going to sort of. Uh, hit and get on base like he did in 2021 that is going to give you a little bit shy i mean they have him at 261 385 right well last year he hit 248 362 so he's short of that but not by leaps and bounds it's a it's a little bit of a of a downgrade there and then if you look at what he did in terms of slugging in 2020 well yeah he had a 430 slugging but that was going along with a 205 batting average. So really, he was still slugging. Oh, he had an ISO over 200 at that point. And this sure. sort of this sort of takes that. And basically, this isn't assuming he gets back to being MVP Christian Yelich. This is taking like his power from 2020 and his on base and hitting from 2021 and saying. You put those together and they they play off each other a little bit to make him a little bit better. And he's about that hitter. So I don't have that big a problem buying this, to be completely honest. I think that it, it, these are these are skills we have seen since that knee injury. We have seen yeah. him slug at this level. We have seen him get on base at this level. So we've we've seen all of this since, but it hasn't been put together in one season. It was in two different seasons where he had down years for different reasons. So I don't have like an intrinsic problem buying any of this because I, if if the problem is the injury or him coming back from the injury or whatever, well we've we've already seen all this. This is not like a huge leap and bound ahead of that. 
So I guess that's kind of where I stand on it is that I don't think this is that unreasonable. I guess that's fair. I mean, you make a good point there that it's kind of a, a mishmash of what we've seen recently. But I I just still have a hard time buying that the power is going to come back. I mean, but maybe that's just recency bias and, and how just overwhelmed he looked last year, too. So I just I, I wish it wasn't weird. Um, I would almost rather <laughs> um, his his on base percentage have like fallen off a little bit more so that it looked more like just a normal injury thing rather yeah. than kind of the bizarre profile that it is now. Um, that's that's my problem projecting anything with any certainty on him at all. Uh, it's just I, I can't put a good comp to him in any way. I've never seen anything quite like it before. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's tricky because his, his eye wasn't hurting, right? It was just his back or, or whatever. So, yeah, it, it's just really weird. Um, we'll loop back to the pitching projections in a second, but we do have a Patreon question from Darren Jones about the hitting spe- specifically. So I want to hit that first. So Darren's question here is, using your favorite projection system, whether it's Pocota, which you've been talking about, or one of the others, which Brewers hitter do you expect to outperform their currently projected line? So we talked how we maybe expect Christian Yelich to be a, a little bit below that projection. Who do you think, Paul, is going to outproduce their projection? I'll go, I'll go with Adamas here. Um, there is uh, a bunch of built-in... Um, pre-brewer time in that projection yeah. and it, it really just depends on if, how much you believe the batter's eye story and I happen to believe it kind of a lot so um, I think <laughs> that last year Willie Adamas is probably much more likely to show up again than three-year weighted Willie Adamas does and I think that he will be um, like an MVP candidate level shortstop this year Ryan how about you that was going to be my pick as well uh, I saw Paul yeah highlighting that one on the spreadsheet here and i'm like no <laughs> sorry yeah i i saw you going for it i guess then for me i don't want to go too far down i want to stay within the starters here yeah there's some guys all kind of off the starting beat that i like i can see david Dahl doing a lot better than what is projected there but he's gonna have to get playing time to make that happen hey. Totally forgot he signed with the Brewers. That's how long this lockout's been going. <laughs> so I I am going to go down to the the next one that Paul hi, you're highlighting this one too. Omar Narvaez at two forty nine. Yeah, that's going to be mine. <laughs> Three eighty nine DRC plus. Yeah, that seems a little low to me. Yeah, I think he's going to be more of an above average hitter than a below average hitter. Like yep, he'll he'll too. be not significantly, but he'll be more shaded to that side of things, and. Yeah. So yeah. give me Omar. I also think that we could really see a true breakout from Luis Urias this year. Like, I wouldn't be stunned if we were looking at like Urias as team MVP type talk this year, especially if he's, if, if like Yelich doesn't get back to 2018, 2019 Yelich. I don't think anybody really thinks that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I could see Urias sort of moving into that position as he settles in at third base and really becomes comfortable there. Yeah. So, but no, I the one I feel best about because honestly the the Urias projection is pretty good two forty nine three forty seven four hundred two like maybe yeah, the slug bad. is low on that um, from what I would put it at but that's a it's a one hundred DRC plus for a middle infielder I mean that's pretty good. Well, third uh, baseman, but yeah, I, third, third base. I mean, yeah, but yeah. like as a guy who's typically been middle infield, yeah, yeah, I guess you gotta adjust for that. But sure, man, if if he does get that Cattell Marte comp and 
there we go. That that's team MVP level. I'd take that for sure. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I guess swinging over to the pitching, then obviously, you know, as you guys mentioned, this is really the strength of the team and probably the source of, I guess, aside from the all above average offensive lineup, which not a lot of teams have, the the pitching is really what drives this overall team projection, right? So I guess just overall uh, perceptions or thoughts, Ryan, on the Pakota pitching projections for the Brewers. Yeah, it's a little bit even more top-heavy than I was expecting. Um, I I was surprised. So, obviously, your first three, nobody's going to be surprised at Burns, Woodruff, Peralta in that <laughs> order. And then nobody's going to be surprised to see Josh Hader slip in next. I will yeah. say I was surprised to see Aaron Ashby as the number five. <laughs> that did ahead of uh, Adrian Hauser, ahead of Devin Williams, ahead of Eric Lauer, ahead of Brent Suter. Yep. That did surprise me a little bit, and it is nice. I, I'm enjoying the fact that uh, <laughs> that they think that he is uh, legit uh, to to go there. Uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm still unsure. I think I've heard enough this offseason in all my Dynasty Baseball podcasts where everybody's kind of gone back and forth and said, well, we think he's going to be a good pitcher. Just sort of a question of is he actually going to be able to start at the big league level or is he going to have to become a – Josh Hader, you know, super reliever uh, before becoming, you know, settling into like a dominant ace reliever role. And I could see either one of those things happening. And I don't think that the Brewers have a particular, the Brewers are not going to be hesitant to, if they look at Aaron Ashby and say, this guy could give us 80 innings of insanely good relief pitching. I don't think the Brewers are necessarily going to hesitate to do that with him. Because they didn't hesitate to do that with Josh Hader at all, right? So totally. I, I, I think that's where they that have the opening cards. Yeah, it's where they have the opening, and also just where they think his long term is. Do they yeah. see a path to? And I guess maybe physically they didn't see it with Hader. They never thought that Hader was physically going to hold up to being a starter. And if you look at sure. him, like that makes sense. Like there aren't too many like 200 inning big league starters or even I guess nowadays 180 big league starters that look like that and have that kind of delivery either. That's a pretty unique, but yeah, the, the Ashby thing was probably the most notable thing that he was fifth in line behind the, you know, the stars, the all-stars. Yeah. They're all. Yeah. Yeah. I guess totally. If we want to do the, the fun comp thing with Ashby, it seems like Bakota is going the reliever route, at least this year, with yeah. Will Smith, Rafael Soriano, and Robinson Tejeda. Yeah. So, I mean, you got a couple of really good, like historically really good, um, at least late inning high leverage relievers there, right, with Will Smith and Rafael Soriano. So um, that's something to be excited for. But I guess, Paul, your your impressions on the pitching Pakota. So first, I, I do think it's interesting on the, the big three, that I I would say Brennan Woodruff has the best comps of oh, all yeah. the three. <laughs> I would say um, so too. by a, by a country mile. <laughs> yeah, Burns comps are weird, right? Like those they are. are. So um, really quick, Brennan Woodruff's comps are Justin Verlander, Bob <laughs> Gibson, freaking Gibson, and Corey Kluber. So like <laughs> that's real good. And then uh, both Peralta and Burns have Max Scherzer in their comps. But yeah, Burns is weird though because we think of him as like the, the I think the best stuff guy and uh, most likely to be super dominant. But his first comp is Miles Mikolas. I don't know how to say that name. <laughs> Michael, yeah, Michael, yeah, yeah. The, the Cardinal pitcher, um, yeah. who's you know a good doesn't pitcher, overpower you, but yeah. you don't think of him as Corbin Burnsy at all. And Tyson Ross, who's eh, all right, 
I don't get that one actually. That's that doesn't really make weird. any sense to me. Uh, and Freddie's, I think, makes all kinds of sense. He is <laughs> he is like Max Scherzer and Rich Harden put together. That's perfect. Uh, <laughs> that I, is I, true. I love, I love what I love what it did there. That's great. Yeah. Um. So th- that's all good. But it's uh, Burns's are weird. Um. Not that that matters that much. You know, these are all for funsies, and he's the yeah. top projected pitcher on yeah, the team. I mean- they still uh, projected at 294 fit and, for Burns, so yes. that's pretty solid. I'm, I'm, I guess I'm mostly surprised by Woodruff's being so good. <laughs> they're, they're really good, right? Um, uh, but uh, aside from that, um, I, I think uh, Eric Lauer projects pretty well here um, mm-hmm. in uh, in his in his set role here, and has good comps and good numbers projected forward. Uh, I like that too because he has two former Brewers, which always <laughs> makes me happy. Uh, in Jake Odorizzi and and Matt Garza, um, oh that's fun i think the so De, I, first of all i like that devin williams is still projected to be very good i, I like to see that i know that picota can't tell that a guy punched a wall but uh <laughs> it's nice but aside from that i did want to point out um devin williams second comp is hunter strickland mm-hmm. currently oh current free agent um and uh just worth worth noting when the brewers may have a type and may want to look at bringing somebody back because uh yeah. Um, you know, he's a weird profile and a weird comp. And if you have a guy just like him, eh, it's worth maybe checking out too. So, but I mean, there's nothing, nothing special uh, to note about the Brewers pitching uh, projections because they're awesome. And that's not a yeah. surprise because the Brewers have awesome pitching uh, kind of up and down. And I, yeah, it's top heavy, but I, I, honestly, it's not like Brent Suter's projected at half a war and half a war for levers actually pretty awesome. Uh, we're yeah. we're kind of, we're used to seeing one wars for guys on this team because this team is insane. But like, there's like a couple guys with 0.5, 0.4, That's still pretty good. Um, most relief pitchers give you zero to 0.1. Uh, so they're just loaded and the projection system sees that. Yeah. One thing that stands out to me is Jake cousins is their third best reliever. If yep. you're counting Ashby yeah. as a starter. It, which sure. I think at this point we probably kind of should. Yeah, yeah. So I like Jake Cousins as the third best guy behind Hader and Williams, obviously. Uh, also, for you, Luke Barker stands out there, and I know you're listening. <laughs> you've got uh, you've got Luke Barker as uh, would be a guy who firmly fits into that bullpen. He's yep, ahead absolutely. of Ray Black, ahead uh, of Hobie Milner, ahead of Perdomo. So he is a guy, you know, right after uh, he is right after Brent Suter. So, yeah, that would be an interesting one. I do think they're going to add to this. I think this is the place where they're going to add the most. I think the depth here yeah. was a little less good. I, I'm surprised if you look at the hitting side, there are more guys over one wins than there are yeah. on the pitching side. You know, like we think of the pitching as being so deep and the hitting as being you know, not. And there are actually more hitters projected for over one wins than there are pitchers. So I think they could, they could stand to add here. There definitely could be some free agent additions. And I think just thinking about the team construction earlier today too, I was like, "Eh, I don't know if I could name who's going to be the middle relievers this year. Right? Like that's really the Stearns wheelhouse, right? The Stearns additions come in, like Paul said, they definitely have a type, and it's just finding those guys. And <laughs> and there's going to be plenty available, uh, like late into spring training too, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, I think yeah, especially with these pitching projections, it, it's fun to look look at. There's 20 guys above replacement level if you if you trust this, you know. But there's still room to add because 
Yeah, I mean, if one of the big three goes down, then you're suddenly back into a spot where eh, maybe you're feeling less optimistic about this year. Sure, and that's always going to be the case, especially with pitching. Yep. Yep, absolutely. All right, as I mentioned, we have a lot of other good Patreon questions to get to this week, so let's go to Jay Google's question next. He's asking, are you expecting more prospects to be at the build-up camp starting next week since we won't have any major leaguers there? Ryan, uh, your your thoughts on, I guess, how camps are going to look? No, I mean, they're always going to be there. This is, you know, once minor league spring training starts in earnest, and that's still a few weeks away, then that's, you know, you all the prospects come in. Minor leaguers have to come to spring training, though MLB will tell you that it's uh, what on-the-job training or something and that it doesn't actually Yeah, and it's worth $2,200. It, they should be paying, they should be paying for the privilege, yeah. Mm-hmm. So like freaking fantasy camp. Yeah, I I love that point when you guys <laughs> talked about it last week. It's it's the experience, really. For exposure. Oh, for yes, for exposure. It's the for exposure argument. Yeah, so on exposure. Yeah. I don't know. I I don't really think that you're going to I don't even know how much information we're going to get out of that like how many people are right. going to be following yeah. that. I guess the prospect hounds will be Eric Longenhagen is probably going to be all over the the backfields <laughs> down in Arizona like he always is, <laughs> though I wonder how much of that's going to be restricted given the the mm. current state of things with MLB, though maybe they want that information to get out so that there's like discussion of future guys. I, I don't know. It's Who knows? Yeah, it's this right. is this is all kind of up in the air, and I, I will say that I would bet on baseball to find some way to really annoy the crap out of us with whatever this ends up be looking like. <laughs> yep. Because they do that very well these they, days. They do. They're good at that. Yeah. All right. Next Patreon question we have comes from Adam Post. Uh, he says, if the season gets shortened due to the lockout, how should teams try to make it up to the fans to garner some goodwill? How about one free beer per fan per game? Paul, <laughs> what do you think of that idea? Uh, uh, the lawyer in me just recoils in horror at the thought of that one. <laughs> A lot of liability, right? Yeah, because one free beer equals minimum two beers for everybody at the stadium. So, um, <laughs> And building off that. But, um the Brewers in particular, I think, are pretty good at building back goodwill. They're good at coming up with um, good ticket options and and uh, packages for people and getting and Ryan Braun Bucks. Ryan Braun Bucks, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about the Braun Bucks. Oh my god. Yep. Um, but uh, it, it really is just about making it a value proposition to get people back in the stadium and seeing games and remembering why they like going to baseball. Um, smart owners will do that and bad owners will not. And uh, it's really as simple as that. Once games are started, you got to be as fan friendly as possible up front to get everybody back in love with the thing. And that's really as simple as it is. But yeah, free beer, not great. Um, Honestly, free concessions are almost always kind of a bad idea. They're just, they're just a rip off. (laughs) Soda costs nothing like it. um, Hot dogs cost nothing. You know what? There's, I don't know if you guys know this, but I'll, I'll mention it because, um, well, uh, just in case we have like a depression or something, there's a famous stew called Hoover stew, which you just make by, um, making, p- putting macaroni, uh, cut up hot dogs, a uh, can of corn, and, uh, I think it's a can of beans all together and then baking it in the oven for a while. It costs six bucks and we'll feed you for like 20 days. Um, <laughs> like that's the thing, like that's what baseball food essentially is made out of. So yeah. Um, 
Uh, anything like that is not going to do it. But yeah, the Brewers, they give out good ticket deals and stuff like that. So um, yeah. that's what you do to get people back in. Well, I just learned a new dinner recipe I'll have to try out this week. So. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> oh. Ryan, what are your thoughts? How can the Brewers win back some fans? I'm recoiling in horror at the idea of that. That's what I'm doing. Right yeah, now. man. Listen, oh. I lived off rice and beans forever right after college. So yeah. there you go. Yeah, that bachelor life. All right. Yeah. So anyway, um, yeah, I, th- I think some sort of Braun Bucks deal. Uh, you could call them, I don't know. Marky Bucks, <laughs> Marky Bucks. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, Marky Marks. Yeah, I just feel like they're more likely to just ignore all of this, ignore the long term effects, ignore all of that. And there's already going to be so much complaining about the DH in uh, in <laughs> our neck of the woods because we're an NL club. That uh, yeah, that'll be that'll be interesting. Even though we have this whole history in Milwaukee of you know, three decades. Almost. It was an AL team forever. Yeah, right. yeah. No, it's fine. So whatever, it, it's fine. Yep, AL team. Many, many of their best hitters, DHs. But hey, DHs playing first base back. or left field. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm sure. You know, once they can finally put some player faces on the bobbleheads, that'll, that'll help sell things. <laughs> yeah. <too. it> <laughs> Bobblehead uh, night number three on my birthday or whatever. Okay. Uh, Mark Potscarby, his next question is, what else would Josh Hader need to do to get into the conversation to get number 71 retired? Oh, goodness. Would being reliever of the year three times and closing out a World Series title do it, or would he need to extend with the crew? So I think, I mean, aren't the Brewers pretty clear that you need to be in the Hall of Fame to get that honor, or is that kind of uh, up in the air here? Paul, I guess what's your take? I don't know because I don't want to think about Josh Hader as anything. Um, <laughs> I I think another uh, it's tough. Like world, closing out a World Series would help. Like maybe another reliever of the year uh, or whatever. Um, uh, it's hard to ignore him if he does that. He like that would make him objectively one of the best relievers ever. So sure. Um, uh, but I, you, you can ignore relievers if you want to too. I, I don't know. I, he probably needs more of a Hall of Fame career. That thing with yeah. Hater is he he probably needs to do it for a lot longer. Like his yeah. peak's been good. Like like Jaws will look at this peak and be like, yeah, that's a great peak. But relief pitchers have it tough. Like they, they just don't accumulate that much value that quickly. And you really have to be like Mario Mariano Rivera type um, and pitch with some dominance for like a decade to yeah. really start to garner a reputation like that. Uh, so I, I don't think you can do it just on short, um, short tenure high peak. I think he's got another like four or five years of putting up great numbers to actually make that happen. Uh, right. And that's just not going to happen. And even Rivera, like, yeah, he ended up with the all time saves record. But like, really, his reputation was built on postseason success. Right. And that's not necessarily something we've seen from Josh Hader. Right, Ryan? Also that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he's going to need to do it in the postseason, and he is going to need to do it in the postseason with the Brewers, and then he's going to need to keep doing it long enough that he can get to the Hall of Fame. That's how he gets his number retired, as he gets into the Hall of Fame. I think that's pretty much going to have to happen. And then I think he's probably done just about enough in terms of winning awards, like relievers of the year or whatever with the Brewers. 
if he goes on and then, you know, two more years with the Brewers and then has a Hall of Fame career for the rest of it, I think he's done enough here at this point to have gotten his number retired. We'll put it that way. Like, I think that sure. that part of it is is fine. He's crossed enough off, but he's going to have to go on and have to make the Hall of Fame as a reliever, especially in. He's going to need like 10 more years of this. Like, well, and what that's going to look like in terms of the way voters are going to be when he gets on the ballot in yeah. 2040, assuming we're all, you know, like. Still, still a civilization, like <laughs> at that point. Yeah, so that. you know, like that is going to be a thing he's going to have to reckon with, also. But if he's all, if he ends up making the Hall of Fame, I think he's done enough here in Milwaukee to have his number retired. We'll put it that way. Yeah, I mean, yeah. also, if you want to look at just uh, you know face value numbers, he's coming into this year fourth in the Brewers' all-time saves list at ninety-six. Dan Plezak has the record at 133, so it's very conceivable that he breaks that record this year, and I think maybe that goes a long way as well, you know, at least in the eyes of a lot of fans. So, um, Well, yeah, if he has a Hall of Fame career, he's definitely going to be the Brewers' all-time saves leader when he leaves here, even if that's just, you know, after next year, unless they were to trade him, in which case, you know, still, I think if he makes the Hall of Fame, if he if Josh Hader gets traded the day after the lockout ends because the Mets <laughs> yeah. do something really stupid and just like throw all of the prospects at us. Uh yeah. If that happens and he makes the Hall of Fame, I still think his number gets retired here. So I think he has sure. I will stick with that. He has done enough in Milwaukee to get the number retired if he goes on to have a Hall of Fame career beyond this. Sure. Not like you need to worry about his number ever coming up and, and preserving that and keeping that from anybody else ever wearing it again either. But, you know, it's nice to hang that up in the stadium as well. All right. Uh, next question comes from Jared Vogeltans. He's asking, which brewer was your original favorite brewer? I'm talking about the brewer who got you hooked into being a Brewers fan who to this day you still have a soft spot for. Uh, for Jared, it was Prince Fielder. Until the day he dies, he will love Prince Fielder. So um, I guess for me, uh, the first big one I fell in love with was Jeremy Burnett's because he had a weird spelled name like I do and hit lefty <laughs> and hit a lot of home runs when I was a kid. So I think I'll always have a soft spot for Jeremy Burnett's. Uh, Ryan, how about you? Yeah, you know, I was going to say Ricky Weeks here because I was thinking more mm. as an adult and whatever. But no, I'm going to go back to I love the hell out of collecting Rob Deere cards in like 1988, 1989, <laughs> after he'd already like resettled into not being the great 87 version of himself. So no, Rob Deere, like because Rob Deere was our slugger. He was our bash brother. And that was a big deal in the late yeah. 80s. And so, you know, like I wanted to have Jose Canseco and Mark McGuire on my team. But, you know, Rob Deere was the sort of, you know, cheap Milwaukee equivalent of it. <laughs> for, for me, it's Paul, Mo- Paul Molitor. Um, yeah, I'm older than you guys. And I, um, <laughs> I mean, I, I watched them in the 80s like every day. And they had two Hall of Famers on the team. And I, I love Paul Molitor, who was just in, an incredible hitter um, for the entire decade and then and then some for other teams um and uh you know he has a bunch of historic moments the streak in 87 was incredible um and like even just like playing like old video games from that era like 
Um, uh, I've mentioned that uh, just to tie it, how this in the reporting is eligible, where we got asked about <laughs> we got asked about LJN NFL football, one of the worst football video games ever made. Yeah, their equivalent. Uh, now I know it's the '87 season because I remember this. Um, the equivalent was MLB baseball, which didn't have names in it but had stats, so you could tell who people were if you knew what the stats were. And Paul Molitor hit 353. He was uh, yeah. third in the league in batting average that year, behind Wade Boggs and Tony Gwynn, who I think were. 362 and, and 371 or something like that um yeah and uh like 353 at the time was an insanely high batting average it really stuck out uh, george brett was up there too he also had similarly high batting average that year um but uh he was just an insanely good hitter um a good good nickname and just super fu- super fun to watch like every single time and a reason to turn into the tune into the brewers every time so uh i, I number four is what i always wear in like rec sports and uh that's the reason why <laughs> that's awesome yeah no all good ones all right i guess in the theme of old school brewers our, our last patreon question this week comes from andrew merker he says as a follow-up from last week not related to kent merker but a multiple great grandfather <laughs> a multiple great grandfather of his owned the boston braves for a year in 1903 I'm not rich because of it. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, his question is, what would be your all 90s Brewers lineup, DH optional, and three starting pitchers? So uh, this one took a little oh, bit of research man. for me because, you know, as as I have said, I'm the younger of us three. So I don't remember a ton from the 90s, at least not the first half of it. But uh, I guess... Paul, let's start with you. What's your '90s Brewers all nine? I guess Brewers all '90s team. It's so hard because it like it's a decade of two different teams, uh, right. like maybe maybe three different teams. So like even catcher's hard because uh, Sirhoff started the decade as the catcher, but was never really like he was a good, okay hitting catcher, but not great. But Dave Nilsson played a lot. Yeah, so he I, did. I think I go with Nilsson at catcher, who was yes. a very yeah, good Nilsson also. Okay. Yeah, um, I actually feel a little bad too. about that that I should have gone with Surhoff there because yeah, I should have gone it's, with Surhoff. It's Surhoff. a tough call. I, I do feel like Surhoff's a little more of an 80s player, but uh Surhoff also, you know, he was their number 1 overall pick that just didn't really pan out. Mm-hmm. So, I always feel like he was good. He was a good player, but not a great player. Um, and, and you then, all gave me so much shit when I took Dave Nielsen in our all-time Brewers draft, and here we all are, all <laughs> '90s team Dave Nielsen. Just so, saying. At first base, I think I actually go with Jaha. Mm, I had Jaha un- as well. Yeah, an underrated player um, historically, who is like a kind of ahead of his time as a high on-base percentage, high power, but high strikeout guy, um, and, and and very good. Um, I think I go Vina at second base. Yep, a very. A- Second baseman. Um, okay. One of my all-time favorite Brewers at shortstop, I go with Jose Valentin, mm-hmm. um, who, who okay. put up like a, a 35 or so war career. And here's where it gets, I think, really tricky at third base because um, I, I don't just I don't like Cirillo as much as everybody else does. Uh, you kind of <laughs> I think you have to go with Cirillo. You have yeah. some other options. There's you could, not you could a lot cram there. off there. You could maybe go Seitzer, but no, you got it. Cirillo is like a top like 10 war brewer of all time. So you have to do that, I guess. Um, and then uh, Greg Vaughn, definitely without thinking yeah. about it, outfield. Um, Center's impossible for me. Well, I don't know. I played a, for a couple lot. of years in the 90s. So you could do that. Um, but he wasn't 
very good. He wasn't so, good, yeah. Um, <laughs> center field is hard. I'm not actually sure. Um, the other two outfields are actually hard in general. I guess you go Burnett's for yeah for a couple years in right. Um, but center field's hard. I'm not actually sure what I like in center field. Um, I might oh, move Daryl. You're yes. Hamilton over there. Hamilton, yes. Hamilton. He, he was not a. He didn't play center field for the most part, though. That's the only thing there. Um, but yeah, I, I like Daryl Hamilton a ton. I guess I'm. He can definitely play center field, so that's what I go with there. But, and then, oh, pitching. I don't want to do pitching too. I mean, um, this is the tr- tricky part because man, was there just a lot of bad there. Well, <laughs> there's also like good that just flamed out like yeah that's the thing it's like i tried to go with guys who were at least there for more than just a year or two or good for a year or two and that gets really tricky with the brewers pitching in the I 90s think the one that you go, for, go with for sure is eldred mm-hmm. um okay as, as like the, the number one 90 starter is cal eldred um and then i'm frantically looking for uh, one other guy real quick but i <laughs> Uh, I can't go with him. He's too bad. Um, I'm going to put Steve Sparks on the team just because I love knuckleballers more than anybody else in the world. <laughs> sure. um, Phone books and everything. Yeah. Yep. Oh, I'm missing somebody though. Um, shoot, 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 shoot. Um, D'Amico maybe? I, I don't know. I, is there a good I, I struggle with D'Amico because like his good season was 2000. Was it? Ah, dang it. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm for that brief sure. shining moment when we thought it might be D'Amico and Sheets that was going to carry yeah. them into the next. Yeah. I was so into D'Amico, and then he didn't work. And Ben McDonald, I thought, might be that, too, for a little bit, because I had his rated yeah. rookie card Oriole and made me mm-hmm. think he was better than he was. <laughs> uh, but well, he, he was a number one overall pick, too. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he was. The curveball was awesome, but, you know, curveballs ruin arms. So um, I don't I don't know who I go with. Like, the relievers were all crap in the 90s. Like, yeah. Mike Cutters was the closer for like four years. That just ruins that option. Um, I I don't know. I got nothing. Graham Lloyd, Australia, <laughs> Australian. We go with Australians. That's fine. Australian battery. Graham yeah. Lloyd to Dave Nielsen. Yeah. Well, okay. So my hitters look almost exactly the same as yours, Paul. I have Nielsen. Yeah. I have Jaha. I have Vina. I have Valentin. I have Cirillo. Uh, Greg Vaughn in left field. Like none of this is. Because you had Vaughn in left field, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So none of that looks any different. I did have Hamilton in center. Um, I ended up going with Jeremy Burnitz in right just because I think he had enough traction there at the end. And his performance, the Jeremy Burnitz thing I will always remember is him at the All-Star game in Fenway. All and home run derby against like freaking Griffey Absolutely. and all those guys. Yeah. Because I remember where I was to watch that, which was I was on a uh, my brother was at camp and I was like the counselor for or I was like the adult supervisor for a week, even though I was just out of high school myself. And so I went up there and I watched it in like the lounge, the counselor's lounge and watched the, the home run derby and was like, we had a group of people and it was very exciting. So Do you remember you remember the all time great um, Chris Berman line on the Jeremy Burnett's home run derby? I, don't. I do not. Okay, well, I'll, I will share it. So, um, Jeremy Burnett is down to his last or second last ball, and he pulls it foul, and he go, he just out loud on ESPN, ah, shit. And Chris <laughs> says, like, without missing a beat when he was still sharp, uh, I think he said it shifted on him. <laughs> <laughs> Berman, it is, Chris Berman was very, very good in the 90s. And I think that people yeah. who are younger than us don't really remember that as being 
a thing. The Chris Berman, yep. Tom Jackson thing. It, yeah. Well, we're off track now, but uh, totally. Yeah. yeah so <laughs> anyway, I had Bernitz there. Who did you have in right field? I missed that ball. He had Bernie. Oh, I had Bernitz. Okay. Yeah, so yeah. we had virtually the same thing here. Um, Paul Molitor at DH just because, of course. All right. Sure. I'll allow it. Um, yeah. And then I had Eldred, but I think you missed a couple of good pitchers here that actually had yeah, probably. Sus- substantial careers in the 90s with the Brewers. One, and I had to look this up because he actually had an year, his entire balance of his career with the Brewers, his ERA plus was actually better than average. He had a 103 ERA plus over 914 innings from really? 1995 to 1999. He's a left-hander. Scott Carl? Scott Carl. Yeah, it was. It was Scott Carl. See, yeah. I'm, okay, I'm okay not putting Scott Carl on the team. That's fine I, with me. I have no problem with this. So, but that one was just like, I think that that sort of got lost because at that time, people would have, one, obsessed with the win-loss records and they would have been yeah, bad. Okay. And two, people would have been very um, reticent to credit him because his, his ERAs were not good. But nope. that was because he was playing in like you know a super happy Deep fun steroid era. Area. Yeah, yeah, the steroid era, the yeah, whatever you want to call it. Like every baseball was flying out of the park all the time here. So like that was not particularly, uh, yeah, it, like not particularly uh, stand out. The other one was the guy that was the key piece that they traded to the Cleveland team for Richie Sexton. For Sexton, okay. So that one, that one stood out to me as well. That would be uh, Steve Woodward. Ah, uh, all right. I forgot about him. Yeah. So he was the key piece that went to Cleveland in that deal, and he was also very much a steroid guy. I think he was uh, very highlighted <laughs> in the Mitchell Report, if yeah. I'm remembering yeah. correctly. Yeah. You are you are correct about that. And Cleveland thought he was the key for them. He they really thought he was going to be the guy that was going to it was going to be him and Jarrett Wright and Bartolo Colon, and that trio was finally going to get them over the hump because in that first run that they had from like 95, 96, 97, it was the pitching that always crapped out on them. Uh, yeah. when their hitting was the other world, the best lineup I think I I the I best lineup game. ever put yeah. together. That 1995 yeah. Cleveland team. I I don't think we're ever going to see anything like that again. That was truly special from top to bottom. Best lineup. Um, and they traded for Woodward and, or Woodard, sorry, Steve Woodard. And uh, mm-hmm. it just, you know, never worked out for them. So, but we got Richie Sexton yeah. out of the deal. So that was great. That was fun. Yep, yeah, that's good. I guess my lineup again, pretty much the same. I have Nielsen and Jaha. I think Mark Loretta maybe deserves a shout out. I slotted him at seconds over Vina. I don't know. It, if you want a honorary <laughs> utility guy, maybe he's there too. I had Valentin at shorts. Uh, I couldn't think of a center fielder, like I said. So I just went with the the one that I remember from Ken Griffey Jr. baseball growing up. Uh, Marquise <laughs> Grissom was the center fielder at the time. So that's, oh, that's what I, I just got there. hated. I hated Brewer Marquise Grissom. <laughs> I saw I saw him line into so many volley killing double plays on that team. I'm yeah. Well, I'm not down with him at all. Brewer Marquise Grissom hated the Brewers too. He did. So, he did. I mean, he, he, that's he also true. Being here. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So there's that uh, after spending, you know, all the time in Cleveland and Atlanta and all that. But uh, he's the, he's the best I could think of. So there. Uh, and as we mentioned, my affinity for Jeremy Burnett. So, of course, he's right field. 
Um, yeah, I had Eldred on my pitcher list, Scott Carl too, just kind of going through some of the, the career leaderboards for the Brewers. Uh, Bill Wegman's up there in career war. He had a decent stretch of 90s years, even though he kind of bridged the 80s and 90s a little bit. But um, another name that I think maybe we forget about, even though he was a pitching coach for a while, it's Chris Bazio. So he had a couple of really good years there in the early 90s before he moved on, but uh, maybe deserves some mention here. Yeah, he's only <laughs> okay. 58 years old. I am looking at his page and I'm like, he's only 58. Good lord. Yeah. You know who yeah. else pitched in? You know who else pitched in the 90s is opening day starter Rafael Roque. Oh, oh yes. yes. Oh mm-hmm. my god. Yeah. Yeah. Um. It. Th- there were just a lot of uh, remembering guys' names in, in that <laughs> 90s list, right? Like we had Ricky Bonus uh, yeah. in there. He had a good season. Um, Jimmy yeah. Hideo Nomo pitched in the 90s for the Brewers. Yes. Yeah. And like Wait, I said, I had to. Early he pitched for the Brewers? Really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Huh. Nomo no was like 99. He was. He? Okay. He was. Yeah. After they so, moved to the National League. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Also, okay. Jim Abbott. Jim Abbott also played for the Brewers in 1999. Yeah. Had, had two so. hits. <laughs> what? I love a that. Fun little factoid. Of a, they're yeah, pitching, they're pitching in the 90s year. is just... I was trying to actually explain this to a well, friend yeah, of mine. You were, you were just talking glowingly of Scott Carl. That's how the Brewers pitching was in the 90s. <laughs> exactly. I, mean, I, didn't pick, I didn't pick one because I went through St- Scott Carl and I was like, we could probably do better than that. I'll just look year by year. Like, no, you can't. You can't do better than Scott freaking Carl. Five years yeah, like, of like getting like almost a thousand innings at a better than league average ERA. I I I think I it, know, that surprised me that he was that good. I was legitimately surprised. Well, somebody has to be your second best pitcher of the decade. <laughs> I I suppose. Yeah, I just did you think he had an above average ERA plus Paul? <laughs> no, no, I didn't. I'm very surprised he had above average ERA plus. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I was going through the career list too. It's like, oh, I, he's got a 101 ERA plus. I guess I'll add him on a list. But like, is that all 90s team caliber? I didn't think so. And it, it turns out, yes, yes, it was. It yeah. Uh, For this oh, list, man. that that makes yeah. you a stud. How about Bill Pulsifer also on that 99 team? He sucked that's so bad. Man. He was bad. So you know what really, who really he bad. like he was part of that generation K uh Mets group with Paul Wilson and Jason Isringhausen. Mm-hmm. Oh man. And they yeah. yeah, and it they all flamed up because they were all, of course, horribly overpitched when they were, you know, babies. So they got yeah. way overpitched, and Isringhausen at least had a pretty damn good career as a closer down the road. And Wilson yeah. was kind of like a, a fourth, fifth starter for a while with the Reds and I think some other teams. But yeah, we got the the bad end of that one, <laughs> as they often did in the nineties, right? Yep. All right. We, you know uh, what? R- really, really yeah. quick before we move on, we uh, probably should have aroma should do portion. We probably yeah. should have mentioned Bob Wickman, who was mm. actually pretty yeah. good. Um, yeah, and I don't think Andrew mentioned relievers, but I think that's a lot easier to do in the nineties than yeah, he, than who, who had good ERAs for. Yeah. Three, four seasons for the Brewers, good FIPS to back them up, and was a pretty good relief pitcher that whole time. Yeah. Have you ever looked at the early 2000s Brewers bullpens and seen how many good pitchers there really were in that group and how many good seasons they put up? The Brewers, I terrible teams. I believe, so no, I don't. Yeah. 
don't believe that's true. I'm going to look now. Yeah, look at like uh, I off the top of my head, like 2001, 2002. I'm going to have to pull this up as well. I got one up now. So like, uh, if okay. You, all right. Fine. Okay. You I had David Weathers being David Weathers good. is pretty good. Yes. Okay. Curtis yeah. Laskanik was even okay. And he had kind of a bad year. Mike right. Dejan, he's good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got gotcha, you. I got gotcha. you. Like um, even on horrible teams, like legitimately horrible teams, they had yeah. a decent bullpen at the at the back end. They they could close down a lead when they got one, which was like once a week. Which is maybe why they were so good is they barely had to pitch because <laughs> yeah, they're, they're just rarely called upon to hold the lead. There's a lot of Man. sad, a lot of sadness in this bullpen too, though. Yeah, you got you got Ruben Quevedo and uh, Nick Nugabauer making appearances. Oh boy, Ruby Q. All right. Uh-huh. Man, this has always been good to remember some guys. Yep. I think this is these are always good segments when we're just waiting for baseball to to uh-huh. pop up again. So Andrew, thank you for the question. A uh, reminder that you get question priority here when you become a patron at patreon.com slash MKE tailgate. We also shout out new patrons when they sign up here. And Ryan, do we have anyone else to mention this week? We do. And he sent us a nice note. And I think this is worth mentioning because we've all known Chris Richards for quite a while here. And he signed up to be a patron and uh, he he sent us a note through the, the direct message. And I'm going to read off some of that here because he he says nice things about us. And I want to say nice things about him. I've known him going back you know, 15 years now from the old Journal Sentinel message board days. And yeah. uh, you, you'll know him as a creature on on uh, Twitter. So. Um, I really like uh, what you do in both the RAE pod and the tailgate. Uh, as I've noted elsewhere, you, uh, JR, Matt, do on RAE what Dave and I would do on the Packers therapy. If we weren't old and uh, too exhausted <laughs> to do any more prep than simply flipping out the recorder and bullshitting after a Packers play. Um, <laughs> I've known Ryan for years, dating back to the MJS uh, uh, late great sports bubbler message board. Um, uh says nice things about me. Uh, so you guys working together <laughs> is a pretty nice listen. Um, I This is about Paul, this obviously. Know, me. Yeah. yeah, I know your job as a lawyer, uh, and that's hugely uh, time-consuming, so I, I appreciate the quality of pods that you somehow find time to produce. <laughs> so, yeah, thank you, Chris. Uh, yep. I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, he apologized for having taken so long, and I'm like, yeah, man, I, I really need to get on it because I don't personally support anything on Patreon. That's not good <laughs> on my part. I need to pick up we'll that, edit that so. part out don't worry about it yeah <laughs> <laughs> so anyway thank you chris and uh yes you you did you. you didn't yeah. need to support us for us to to appreciate uh yeah yeah having known you this long so thank you <laughs> thank chris. you chris i appreciate the kind words a ton yeah yeah absolutely chris thank you uh a reminder too even if you don't uh sign up to become a patron you can support us in another way that's a five-star review and a rating for this podcast paul as a reminder will literally read Anything you write, including apparently the full lyrics to yeah. Brewer's Fever. So, uh, <laughs> oh, you missed that, James. You really brewing? missed that. No, I, I listened to it. I, I was dying in my car as it happened. So that was that was fantastic. How long did it take you to figure out what was happening? Uh, I mean, I I kind of figured out when Paul said, "I think I'm supposed to sing this," okay, uh, yeah. and, and the rhyming started. Yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't know if it was going to be Brewer's Fever or Brewer's Turning Up the Heat, the heat yeah. but, you know, uh, either one, just priceless. So 
you want to make Paul sing the other song, you can do that. Give <laughs> us a five star review, <laughs> and, and and we'll make him sing again here. Yep. Uh, as always, Paul singing always a highlight. So uh, we'll just add that to the album we're compiling as well. That sounds good. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So again, only five star reviews. We'll read it right here. Doesn't matter uh, where you do it, but uh, Paul will read it most likely off Apple Podcasts. It does matter actually because I can't yeah, check yeah. every single podcast site in the world. So yeah, um, that's true. So just do them Apple's, on all of them to be safe. Yeah, yeah. there you go. Smart. <laughs> but he will read them off Apple Podcasts. So if you really want to make sure he reads them, do it there. And while you're there, hit that subscribe button, whether that's Apple Podcasts, uh, Spotify, Pocket Cast, anywhere else. Hit that subscribe button. Also helps us out there and make sure you never miss an episode. So uh, kind of ran long this week, but a lot of good talk. I'm I'm glad we were actually talking about, you know, projections in, in baseball things mm. and not just lawyer speak. So no offense, Paul. Uh, but, I'm, you know, I'm taken. I hate yeah, it too. exactly. So, uh, you know, fingers crossed something good happens in the next week with the negotiation. And, and we can start looking forward to spring training here soon. Uh, in the meantime, thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you here next time on Milwaukee's Tailgate.